Today's scripture reading is going to come from 1 Kings chapter 11. I invite you to turn over there. Actually, chapter 12, excuse me. Chapter 12. Wait. It is chapter 11. (laughs) I've got it written down wrong here. Which means it's probably wrong up there. Yeah, that's my fault. You're so close. If you're in 1 Kings 12, you're so close. Just go back a chapter. 1 Kings chapter 11. But the verses are right, I think. We'll see when we get there. But I know we're for sure starting in verse 1. Last week we talked about King Solomon, who was of course David's son. And we talked about how he asked for wisdom. When God said, "What's what's one thing that... You would ask of me, I will grant it. And he said, wisdom. And God gave him a wisdom. In addition to long life as a uh, promise, if he followed God's command, he granted him wealth, victory over his enemies. But how does it end for Solomon? Well, it doesn't end as well as it started. So we're going to take a look at the end of Solomon's reign and what we can learn from it as we read together 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. And 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. And Solomon grew old. His wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. As the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the the Sidonites. And Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So he did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Komesh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon To follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do this during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hands of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you are, we do have Kingdom Kids today. Again, we're on a summer schedule that has Kingdom Kids meeting on and off during the summer, rotating weeks. And so on this week, we do have Kingdom Kids. So we have children heading over. They're going to head over here to where Miss Marcia is. And they're going to have a chance to go on over to the uh, Christian Life Center upstairs where they're going to get to learn. 
and worship at their level, and they're going to have a great time. We're so thankful for our Kingdom Kids workers. And uh, parents, you'll just meander over there after service and pick them up. And we will miss their sweet voices, won't we? Parents are like, mm, eh, not so much, maybe. We seem a little sleepy today, I'll be honest with you. I don't know about you, maybe it's a long weekend, I'm kind of feeling it myself. But we seem a little sleepy today, so we're going to have to ask the Lord to infuse us with some energy through the Holy Spirit, because uh, I really feel like this is uh, actually one of, one of the most important moments in the life of Israel. And it has something incredible to teach us about influence. Those that we allow to influence our lives. And as we think about that, kind of influence we can be in other people's lives. So as always, we need God's help, but maybe a little bit more this morning. We'll see. As we take a look at 1 Kings. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us into a relationship with you. God, I know that there may be some here this morning that have a hard time believing that, that you know their name, that you care about them, that you want to be involved in their lives, you want them to uh, know that they are forgiven, that they have hope for eternity. God, I pray that you would do what only your Holy Spirit can do and just speak to their hearts, that they may know that they are known and they are loved by you. For us, Father, who are seeking to follow you we've already believed that you do love us that way believe that you sent jesus into the world that we might be forgiven of our sins to have that relationship with you as perfect sons and daughters a status which we could never earn god i pray that you would help us to hear what your word has to say and that we would seek to live it out this we ask in the name of jesus amen I think I've told this story before. I have at least to the students, and I know my kids have heard this story for sure. But a little antidote. I remember when I was growing up, and I was a little kid. I was still probably in elementary. I don't think I was out of elementary school just yet. And I came home one day, and my mother was there, and she just began to talk to me about a friend she saw me hanging out with. And she was asking me about this friend. And she, you know, you know how parents, they ask those questions and they already know the answers. You know what I'm saying? Like they're just, you know, they're just getting started, right? That's, that's just the warm-up conversation for what's about to really take place, right? And so she's talking to me about this friend I was hanging out with. And then she asked me, you know, she's asking me about him. And then she said this. I remember this. Even as a kid, I'm I, I, that far back. And I don't have a great memory sometimes. But I remember this. She, she just simply said, I don't think that's a boy you should hang out with that's all she said there's no hard rules or laws she didn't try to say anything else she didn't try to explain her reasoning or anything that's all she said to me and in my little brain now now some of you know like god just made some of us hardwired to listen and follow directions we're compliant rule followers how many of you fit in the compliant rule followers category you see rules, you see laws, you say, yep, I'm going the speed limit. Now, some of us are not rule followers. I, don't, I would ask you to raise your hand, but you probably wouldn't do it, right? You just say, forget about it. I'm not doing that. So, <laughs> Now, my personality is to be a rule follower, believe it or not. Most of the time, I want to do whatever it is expected of me. So I just listened to my mom, and I just did what she said until I got to a certain age. 
called Teenagers. When I was a teenager, I decided that I would pick whatever friends I wanted. And my friends happened to like to do the same things that I like to do, which were things that we shouldn't be doing. Some things that were illegal. Do y'all, y'all, we don't have to go down that road. But I made bad decisions as a, as a teenager, as you can imagine. Any of us do. And I remember you know, getting caught up in that group and doing the things that we shouldn't be doing. And then in the middle of that teenage stage of life, God grabbed me. He saved me. I became a Christian. Uh, and I've told that story before. I won't get into it. But, but God, he, he spoke so clearly to you. I didn't hear an audible voice. I just had this impression upon my heart. God is real. Jesus really did die for me. I really can't have forgiveness. All the stuff I've been hearing about at church and learning about at church, it came crystal clear to me as a 16-year-old high school student. And something about that in my brain, it clicked. I can't live the way I used to live anymore. Something has to change. And so with my current group of friends, the invite still came. Let's go do this. Let's go do that stuff that's not good, sometimes not legal, right? And so they said all that. And then I just, I started declining the invitations. I started spending less time with them. Developed a group of Christian friends who were heading in the same direction as I was hoping to head. And I saw that my life began to shift and change. And and as a teenager, I didn't really think much of it. I just knew that the way I used to live can't be the way I live now. God's calling me to live differently. And I know that was the Holy Spirit because, I mean, that would have been a very hard thing to have done. To leave behind a group of friends and develop new friendships. And leave behind a group of activities that I enjoyed because sin is often enjoyable. And to move into Christian discipleship activities like reading my Bible and praying. That's 100% the Holy Spirit. Nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with my character. That was all God, right? Now what I noticed as I got further into young adult life is that that same kind of decision making didn't happen with everyone in my family. I won't say who. But I began to notice in their lives they didn't make those same kinds of decisions. They didn't decide to go to church. They didn't become a Christian. They didn't, they didn't look for friends that wanted to be like Jesus. And I saw the results of their life. Now, thankfully, one of those family members has turned the corner. And they're now following the Lord. But it took decades to recover from some of those mistakes they made early on. Another family member we still pray for. As I know all of you have family members. Or maybe you are that family member that needs prayer. And we all need prayer. But I saw something, and as I look back on it, I've come to understand that there's a valuable lesson in this. Who you let into your life will help determine how you'll turn out in life. Who you let in will determine how you turn out. I saw that happen for me, and I saw that happen to those around me, that who you let in will help determine how you'll turn out. Now, we saw before Solomon had a great start, right? He he was a king at a young age. And God gives him this unimaginable dream. God comes to him and says, you can ask me for anything and I will give it to you. 
Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of a king, what might you want? Victory over your enemies. Great wealth to secure your kingdom, right? Long life to sit on the throne, right? Those are all things you would think you would ask for if you're a king. Solomon doesn't ask for any of those. He says, give me a wise and discerning heart. Remember we talked about that last week. I'm in over my head, God. I need your help. I can't possibly rule this kingdom with my own human abilities. I need your supernatural wisdom. And we're told that God grants that to him. If only he had made use of that wisdom throughout his life, it would have been a different ending to his story, but he did not. And we can take from that that there's a difference between wisdom and making use of wisdom. You can be wise. You can know the right thing to do. You can know the right way to do it. And you can know the right timing in which you should do those things. You can know all of that and still make a bad decision. And that's Saul towards the end of his life. He had the wisdom he needed, but he chose not to use it. And the most fundamental and destructive way in which he did not use his wisdom is who he allowed into his life. God made it very clear. As soon as the folks crossed over the Jordan and entered into the promised land, God made it very clear. There are people who reside here who worship detestable gods You have to get rid of them or you will fall in line and worship them as well. Who you let in will help determine how you'll turn out. And you cannot allow those people who worship gods, who, for example, like Molech that we read about earlier, requires child sacrifice. I'm not going to get into all that, but that's what these foreign gods required, right? They were detestable. That's not just God's opinion. It's the fact that God points out that you follow these people. It's going to lead you down a trail far, far, far from me. So God says to him, don't let them in. Don't let them into your life. And who would be the one that would set the tone and be the one that would be, you know, like the most important figure in all of the land to follow that instruction, but a king. And King Solomon violates God's command. Now, why would he do that? The scriptures say he loves them. He chose them. There's probably some truth to the reality that it mentions in there that he marries a bunch of ladies who are of royal birth. Now, what would that mean? It means he would secure you know, military ties. He could even gain some land and some property through these strategic marriages. Solomon disregards the wisdom that he had to not let in those who would take him far from God. And we see the results of that. God tells Solomon, I'm going to take your kingdom from you. It's going to, in fact, be divided between your son and one of your officials. And that's exactly what happens. Now, we would hope... You know, that Solomon's son, whose name is Rehoboam, we would hope that his son would learn from his father about who you let in. Because that helps determine how you'll turn out. But he doesn't learn from his father. So early on, after Solomon dies and the kingdom is passed on to his son, Rehoboam, we read in uh, 1 Kings 12. You can just turn over there if you want to follow along. But we read in 1 Kings 12 an encounter 
Now, one thing that we find out prior to in between what the story of, of Solomon and, and all of his intermarrying and the results of that and the start of Rehoboam's reign, what we read in, the, in between that is the prophecy that there is one, in fact, who is an official underneath Solomon who is also given a, a, a prophecy that he's going to be the one that God uses. Remember, God says to Solomon, so one of your officials is going to be the one that sits on your throne. And this guy's name uh, is, uh, or Rehoboam is the son. This guy's name, uh, where is it at? I knew I should have, Jeroboam, thank you. Thank you, Bible, in front of me. Jeroboam, right? So Jeroboam is the one who's going to take over the kingdom. He's told this. Before this encounter, he's told this, Solomon knows this, Solomon tries to kill him, so Jeroboam goes on the run. But when Solomon dies, Jeroboam returns back to Israel, and he has this encounter with Solomon's son, who is now ruling over Israel, Rehoboam. So in verse 1 we read, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, remember that's the official... That's going to sit on the throne. Son of Nebat heard this. He was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, as we just mentioned. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him. Now, this is the important part. This is where we see that Rehoboam doesn't learn from his father's mistakes. That would be Solomon. That who you let in will help determine how you turn out. Verse four. Your father put a heavy yoke on us. So again, this is Jeroboam, Solomon's official, speaking to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who is now king over Israel. So he says, listen, your father put a heavy yoke on us. Now, what we find is Solomon had incredible wealth. He built Solomon's temple. It was beautiful. It was ornate. It was, it was the most impressive thing in the entire world. Solomon had amassed all of this wealth and he used it to build a palace for himself. Now, how did he do that? He, he taxed his people and he put them into slave labor, basically. He was hard on his people in order to lift himself up and build up his own little kingdom. Now, Jeroboam being one of those officials that the King Solomon would have used to get all this done, he knew that. And he knew the people were tired of this. And he knew that the people saw this is a chance for reform. Solomon's gone now. We got his son sitting on the throne, Rehoboam. Here's a chance for things to be different. And so Jeroboam, Solomon's official, comes to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who's now king of Israel, and says... Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. Rehoboam says, give me some time to think about it. Give me three days. What Rehoboam does is he takes this situation to the elders of Israel. Brings together all of those who were wise in the kingdom, who had, who had served under Solomon, and said to them, here's the situation. The people are coming to me through the spokesperson, Jeroboam. They're asking me to lighten the load. He consults the elders. He says, how would you advise me to answer the people? Verse 7, they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them, 
and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. They gave wise counsel. Unfortunately, Rehoboam did not learn from his father Solomon that who you let in will determine how you'll turn out, which not only applies to him personally, but for the whole kingdom. For the sake of the whole kingdom, he does not listen to these wise elders. We read in verse 8, but Rehoboam rejected the advice that the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving with him. He says, what's your advice? How would you answer these people? Verse 10, this is his friend's advice. His friends, the young men who grew up with him said, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us. Make, a, make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. It's kind of a weird comeback, but okay, all right. We're tracking with you. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. And you know what a yoke is? It's that thing you would put on an ox that would pull the plow, right? The heavy yoke of, of almost like indentured servanthood or slavery that, that Solomon had put on the people. I want you to do all this forced labor for me, for my temple, for my palace, for my kingdom, right? That was the heavy yoke. These people have said to us, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, this is the young men's advice to Rehoboam, the king of Israel, Solomon's son. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Wow. Like, first of all, how do you scourge someone with scorpions? I don't know how you do that. Uh, but it sounds painful. It sounds terrible, right? Just getting hit with a whip is bad enough. A whip made out of scorpions. I mean, that just, oh, frightening, right? He gets bad advice. He lets these young men who are his friends, who have unwise advice, counsel in. So what will come out? Foolishness in, foolishness out. Rehoboam listens to him. When Jeroboam comes back, Rehoboam tells him exactly what Rehoboam's friends had told him. And at that moment, the kingdom of Israel, built up under, the, under David, expanded under Solomon, is fractured. Have you ever heard in the Bible the divided kingdom of Israel? This is where it happens. It starts with Solomon's willingness to disobey God and let in all these voices from all those he married who influenced him to worship all these false gods. It starts with Solomon. Choosing foolishly who to let into his life. And his, and his son follows suit. Rehoboam chooses foolishly who he lets in to counsel him on his life. And the end result of is this kingdom of God being fractured. And eventually after it's been divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. After it's been divided, it eventually falls. Continues to progress and get worse. To the point that foreign enemies are able to invade and overtake first the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. A couple decisions made by a couple of leaders 
impacted the fate of a nation for hundreds of years. And what was that decision? It was a decision to let in those whom they should not have let in. And now we see how things turn out. There's something there for us to learn. I think it's obvious, isn't it? Who we let into our lives will help determine the outcome of our lives. Who we let in will determine how we turn out. So who are you letting in? Who are the voices that you listen to? Might be on TV, might be on social media, might be your friends, your co-workers. Who do you let influence you? Who do you let speak into your life? Amen, brother. He said Jesus, by the way. Because if you don't make a good choice here, if you don't make a good choice about who you let in, it can have a very negative impact on how you turn out, how your family may turn out, how your work life may turn out. So who do you let in? Who do you allow to influence you? Who do you spend time listening to? Who do you spend time reading? Who do you spend time following? Who is speaking into your life? Because that will have a direct correlation to the outcome of your life. Now, here, here's the rebuttal, okay? Here's the rebuttal to what I'm saying. What about Jesus who hung out with sinners, right? What about that, right? There's a lot of different things we may think about that, but let's take a look at one particular place in Scripture where we read about this. Luke chapter 15 is known as the chapter of Luke in which we find the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, or more accurately, the parable of the lost sons. Because as we find at the end of that story, of course, the older son was just as lost as the younger son. Just in a different way. But how does Jesus get into all these parables? What sparks his, his imagination to share these parables with those who are around him? We learn that in the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. Where we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors... They thought of as sinners just as anybody else. But they got like their own special designation because of how disliked they were among the Jewish people. Because they took taxes, of course, from the Jewish people to give to the Roman government who was oppressing the Jewish people. Okay, So just, you know, you, you're hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They're all gathering around to hear from Jesus. But the Pharisees, now these are the very religious elite people. These were the people who were just you know, scrupulous when it came to following not only the commandments of the Bible, but all the commandments they could come up with that would keep them from even coming close to violating a commandment of the Bible. If the Bible says don't go 10 feet, they'd say, no, 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 let's not go 20. So we never get close to violating the commands of God. So it's very religious people. And not in the good sense. Verse 2 of Luke 15. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What about that? If we're saying that we need to be very cautious about who we let 
into our lives because that will help determine the outcome of our lives. Jesus doesn't seem to be all that concerned. Here he is hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. I think there's three things we have to recognize in the way Jesus interacted with those who were not chasing after the same things as he was chasing after, namely to please the Father. There's at least three things we got to say. First of all, Jesus is God in the flesh, and he had the unique ability to withstand temptation to sin. We, however, do not have that unique ability to to avoid all temptation and to never fall into sin. It is said of Jesus in Hebrews 4.15 that we do not have a high priest. It's speaking of Jesus there. We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like when friends come along and say, well, let's do this or let's do that. Or at the workplace, you're influenced to violate your conscience and go against God's word. He knows, he knows what it's like to have people who want to speak into your life. that really have no business speaking into your life. He can empathize with our weakness, but we have one, Jesus, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, the scripture says, yet he did not sin. So we have to recognize that Jesus has a unique ability to deal with temptation and not fall into sin that we do not necessarily have. We are going to fall into that sin at some point. And so we have to be careful who we let speak into our life. Because unlike Jesus, not only are we tempted to sin, But we will give in to that sin, especially if the pressure is strong enough. Jesus could withstand the pressure. You and I cannot. Jesus could be amongst sinners and eat with them and be close to them in a way that we would have to be more cautious. Number two. We remember that it's not that just Jesus only hung out with sinners. That's not what I'm saying either. I'm not saying just hang out with Christian folks who are also sinners, by the way, but... I'm not saying that, but that's not Jesus's example either. It's not like he just hung out with people who were far from God. He also had surrounding him people who were close to him, who were also chasing after the will of God, their father. He had his group of disciples and within that group of disciples, he had 12. And within that 12, he had three close friends, Peter, James, and John. They had been with him the longest. They were of the three, the only three, he chose to accompany him at the time of his transfiguration. We read about that in Mark 9. And these three were the only ones he asked to come with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember that moment in Jesus' life, one of the most difficult moments in his human life as he prayed about what was to come in his crucifixion. And these are the three friends he brought to pray with him. What's the point? The point is, yes, Jesus associated with sinners. And we shouldn't isolate ourselves from people who are not following Jesus. But those closest to him were after the same things he was after. I don't know how much they influenced Jesus. But when it comes to us, we most definitely need close friends who will influence us in the ways of Jesus. We most definitely need that. And you don't grow out of that need. You need it as a kid, you need it as a teenager, you need it as a young adult, you need it as a young married couple, you need it as young parents. You need it when, you, when your parents are teenagers. Amen. I'm with you. We need it. All the way through life. Empty nesters, grandparents, when you get retired, there's never a point in which you don't need godly friends. 
Jesus sets for us that example. So it's not just that Jesus hung out with those who are far from God and not heading in the direction of God. He did that. And we can do that too. But those closest to him, those who had the opportunity to maybe influence him, I don't know, but they definitely had the opportunity for Jesus to influence them. Those folks were heading in the same direction he was. Third thing. Though Jesus hung out with those far from God, his aim was always to bring them in close. To draw them into the Father's love. He was the one doing the influencing, not the one who was influenced. Continue reading with me in Matthew, or in Luke chapter 15, the next few verses. Remember the first part, the Pharisees are looking down on Jesus because he hangs out with sinners. And then we read this. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? What that tells us is that Jesus is saying, yes, I hang out with these people because I want to draw them into the Father's love. That was his aim. And so you with your unbelieving friends, your friends that are far from God, your friends that don't believe like you, that aren't after the same things as you, God might very well call you to be the influencer in their life. To be the one that draws them to the Lord. You have to know that that's your role. Or else you might find yourself in the position of being influenced away from God and the things of God and the path that God wants you to walk down. So this is you have to do this carefully. You have to do this prayerfully. You have to do this intentionally to see yourself as someone who is there to influence them in the ways of God. Jesus shows us that he had and he alone has a unique ability to withstand any temptation and not sin. That doesn't describe us. So we have to be cautious. Jesus' life overall demonstrates for us that just as he needed close friendships with people who were heading in the same direction as he was heading into the Father's will, so do we. And when he did spend time with those who were the sinners of the day, he did so with the intention to be missional in their lives, to be that, the, the force in which God used to draw them to himself. He saw that he was there to influence them, not to be influenced by them. And I think we can all say, thank God that he did. Thank God that he was willing to come down and associate with sinners because we're in that group. That's us. We needed Jesus to invade our lives as that great missionary that came from heaven to earth. We needed a Jesus who was willing to associate with sinners like you and me who are far from God, who have not had the things of God on our mind, who have not had the heart and passion for the Lord that we should have. We are so grateful that he came as that missionary. But he comes with the intention to turn those of us, me, You, who were once enemies of God, to turn us to be friends of God. And we read in John 15, 15, that that is what Jesus called those who would walk with him. I have called you friends. So let me encourage you with this. Maybe you'll agree with me. Those you let in determine how you'll turn out. 
There is no one more important that we have to decide to let in than Jesus. That will have the most important determining factor in how we will ever turn out is that decision to let Jesus in. And so he says to us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, I will come in and I will eat with you. That's a term for friendship. I will come in. I'll be your friend. I hope walk with you as we walk together towards the Lord. Will you let him in? Will you let Jesus have that kind of influence in your life? Will you let him speak into how you spend your time? How you spend your money? The things you think about? The things you desire and want? The direction of your life? The decisions you need to make? Will you let him in? Here's the thing about Jesus. He's not going to push his way in. He is not going to force you to do it. He is not going to make you be his best friend. But he stands at the door and knocks. What's that say to us? He wants to come in. He wants to be our friend. Who can give us incredible influence. Who can change the very direction of our life. Who can give us a future. A hope. An eternity. And if we let him in. If we choose to let Jesus in to every area of our life, holding nothing back, if we choose to let him in, it will have the greatest impact on how we turn out. Let's pray. Father God, you know it's, it's easy for us to see Solomon and Rehoboam and just think how foolish they are to let these people speak into their lives and make a mess of things. But I think in our honest moments, God... We would say, yeah, I'd do that. I'll listen to talking heads on the TV. I'll watch those on social media. And they're, they're not chasing after you. And I let them influence me. I've got friends with no interest of you. And I'm, I'm letting them speak into my life and influence me in ways that aren't pointing me towards you. Each of us could say that, God. At some point in our life, if not now... That we are far more like Solomon and Rehoboam than we would like to admit. So we stand before you, God. Each and every one of us in equal parts broken sinners. While there's much that we could say that would just rehash what's already been said, we want to say this one thing. Father God, we want Jesus to come in. We want his influence on our life. We want him to be our companion as we walk the path you've called us to walk, as we head together towards you. That is what we desire. And we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Time of invitation now, a chance for us to respond to the Lord. You know, it's good for us to examine our lives and ask the question, who are we allowing to influence us in a way that isn't leading us towards Jesus and the things of God? And that might just be a way for you to think through this invitation this morning. Is just to prayerfully say, God, is there, am I allowing someone or something to pull me away from you? Let, let God speak to you about that. Maybe nothing comes to mind. Maybe, maybe you're doing good. 
Praise God. Or maybe God convicts you that, yes, there are some sources that are pulling you away from Him. Or maybe there's a void of sources of good Christian friends that aren't there pulling you towards Him. But let's respond to God as we pray, as we sing, as we encounter this time of invitation. Let's respond to the Lord and ask Him, where, where are those influences that are either drawing us away from Him or those influences that may be absent that could be drawing us towards Him? Let's talk to God about those things. Open up our lives to Him. Let Him speak to us and let's...